Good morning, everyone. Can you guys hear me? Yeah? Yeah? Awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. Um, yeah, my name's Sam Rissolet. Um, I'm 24. Um, and so what's interesting about this service and, and what I really want to do and start off with is thanking you guys so much for having, hi, um, having me here. And ultimately, um, I really appreciate that CBC requires of the next generation that we get involved, that we get our skin in the game, that ultimately, right, we're, we're participating. Um, I, as Jeremy kind of alluded to, I have been a distant relative of this church body. Um, and what I mean by that is ultimately, there are a lot of you here, Egyptians, that I, I consider family. Um, and I will introduce you as my family. And ultimately, what's hilarious is they're probably sitting in the crowd going, yeah, we're, we're nowhere near related right now. Um, there's no part of the bloodline where we're actually intersecting. So um, in any case, I just wanted to thank you so much for, for having me here. Um, just want to remind you that uh, I will, you know, I've been praying diligently this week just to make sure that um, God is actually the speaker here, that I'm just a microphone that he picked up. And, um, and so, yeah, they've allotted me 30 minutes. I timed nothing. Um, so I just want you to know. I'm, I'm literally just going to be speaking from the heart here. And if we end at 8 p.m., we end at 8 p.m. Um, so with that, um, I just kind of wanted to be honest with you. Um, in my preparation for, for this morning, um, I, I just kind of was just seeking the Lord out. And it was funny. Jeremy and Stephen Gad actually approached me and they were like, hey, would you like to <laughs> would you like to speak? And, um, and in my mind, I was like, heck no, techno, there's no way, there's no way I want to speak. And as soon as they asked me the question, I was like, yes. And with that, I was like, no, no, get, get that back, right? And I felt like God just laughing, just laughing up there. Um, I got you, right? Um, so with that, I want to give you a bit of an anecdote. And, and ultimately, what I want to do with this anecdote is kind of frame how we want to look at uh, this morning and, and, and what God wants to share. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Holmes and Watson camping story. Is anyone familiar with that? No? Okay, okay, good. This is great. Um, so Watson and Holmes go out on a camping trip, um, and they're enjoying dinner together, and at some point, after much liquid refreshment, they fall asleep. And in the dead of night, Holmes wakes up suddenly and goes, oh my goodness. He starts nudging Watson and he goes, ah, oh, Watson, look at the sky. What do you see? And Watson basically looks at Holmes and goes, oh, like, you know, millions of stars. And Holmes goes, okay, what does that tell you? And Watson, after much deliberation, sits there and goes, ah, oh, you know, ultimately, astronomically, I know there's billions of planets and galaxies out there. Astrologically, I could tell you that Saturn is in, you know, Leo. Um, orologically, I can tell you that it's half past three in the morning, right? Um, and then meteorologically, I can tell you that it's going to be a beautiful day tomorrow. And theologically, I can tell you that ultimately we're just these insignificant beings in the overall grand scheme of this life. And he goes and nudges Holmes and goes, what, what ultimately... Is it, is it telling you? And Holmes, perplexed by this monologue that Watson gives, ultimately looks at him and goes, Watson, you idiot! Someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> and and I, I guess I paraphrase this story to tell you that I guess I'm buying some of your loyalties here, but ultimately what I'm trying to do with this is there, there's going to be questions asked during this service, and um, I, would, I would beg of you and I would implore of you that you, you really um, try to forget the Sunday school past of yours, that you would ultimately reach down within your heart, kind of understand where we, what we're trying to attack with this um, and, and kind of go forward. So with that, I wanted to ask a question. Um, it's an interesting question. And ultimately, you know, what I want to ask with that is, I'll just ask it, what is our end goal as believers and and i want to take some like said so, you know i want people to like shout some things out to me so like anyone anyone at all what's our end goal as believers everyone's like what what okay beautiful thank you sir build the kingdom be a reflection of jesus christ was the first one build the kingdom anything else 
Glorify God. Okay. Anyone else? Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Spend eternity with our Lord. Okay. Anything else? Nothing? Okay. That's good. Um, contrary to popular belief, I will do nothing with those responses. Um, ultimately, <laughs> I, I, just, I just wanted to ask rhetorically so that you guys would kind of hold that in deep within your hearts. Um, so, it's, so I just want you, even if you didn't shout any of the beautiful suggestions we heard here, keep that question in the, in the, you know, in the pit of your stomach, kind of just like wrestle with that in your heart um, as to what our end goal is as believers. A lot of times, for me personally, um, I, I find that it's performance-based. Um, at times, I find that there's just a lot of distraction, and so it's a polarizing question indeed. And so what I wanted to do this morning is start with an ideal. I do this a lot at work, and ultimately I will approach our team and, and basically go, what is our end goal here? And it's a polarizing question, because ultimately you sit there and you go, my goodness, I, I have this ideal in my mind, and I have no idea if it relates with anyone else's. And so that's what's different here about the Word of God, is he leaves little to interpretation, and I think there's a lot of reflection in, okay, what exactly is that end goal? And so what I want to do now is, I, I know Jeremy ultimately uh, pointed to uh, the hero series that you guys are going through, um, and I, I hope that whatever I have to share today fits within that realm. But ultimately... Let's read Hebrews 11, 32 through 40. As a quick disclaimer, there's going to be a lot of scripture uh, read today. Contrary to popular belief, we are in church. Uh, the Bible will be cracked open. It will be read and digested. And I would ask you to marinate it. So if you'd like, I have no PowerPoint for you, no notes for you. Ultimately, just um, open up the word. Um, and, I'll, and please, please stop me anytime you didn't catch what, what passage I'm referring to. Just just shout it out, right? And be like, what will you say? Um, Hebrews eleven thirty-two through 40. Paul writes, And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release um, so, that they, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in caves, uh, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Um, a couple of things about this passage that I find intriguing. Um, one is the ground shakes beneath my feet every time I read it. Uh, there's this idea here that Paul is referring to a set of believers that ultimately changed the course of history, that, that believed in Christ, right? that believed in what all that he had to offer and just went, went with it. right? And I find it hilarious because there's absolutely no hierarchy as to the actions you know, committed in this, in this passage, right? You have sawn in two on one hand, right? And you have being mocked on the other. There's absolutely, within my societal, you know, human view of the world, that being sawn in two relates in any way or is as grave as being mocked, right? And you have all these different parts of the spectrum where ultimately people are being absolutely persecuted, um, in every single way. So it addresses you as a believer. Here we have what we call the Hall of Faith, chapter 11, where everyone is experiencing um, insane things in the, in the faith. Let's move a little bit backwards here, right? Let's go to Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. If you can kind of picture the roadmap we're at, right? As a believer, these are the things I guess you would be called, at some point we would be living out in our faith. We'd be living out our calling through what's described in this first passage, right? So let's move a little bit backwards, right? 
In 13, verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, right? For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Um, one thing that I, I, I will be pointing out a bit later is it's calling out, again, this tunnel vision for the believer, right? That it is not so much about the things accomplished in this life, but it is more about understanding the homeland that they were going to, right? That they were going to be reconciled with their with God, that they were going to be reunified with Him. And so, ultimately, you have this polarizing, offensive passage where all of a sudden you're going, my goodness, they didn't receive the things promised, right? That in itself offended me one too many times in my life, right? If you, I'm trying to stir up something in you guys this morning. Ultimately, take offense to some of these things you're reading, right? Take, Take some sort of intrigue, some sort of uh, there has to be tension and friction when you read a passage like this, right? Because ultimately what Paul is illustrating for you is, hey, right, let's wake up. This is ultimately what we're meant to do, right? That God has promises for us, right? But we won't receive them or things of that nature, right? The, the end goal of that, we may not be around to witness that. So Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, let's backtrack once more, Right? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Um, One thing that I'm reflecting on while I read this passage is, okay, there's this invisible force here, there's this faith aspect that's constantly alluded to in these passages. And ultimately, the analogy that God kind of provided me was faith being a magnetic force and that God is ultimately the biggest magnet you've ever thought of, right? Like you have this huge entity, right, that is either... And and the two things happen with that magnetic force. If I don't know if any of you guys have studied physics or cared to, but uh, I'm, I'm an engineer by trade, and ultimately, I like to think of things sometimes technically, sometimes abstractly. I say all of that to say that forgive any technical kind of illustrations I'm going to give to you this morning, <laughs> but ultimately, what I want to illustrate is there are only two options for a magnet or a magnetic force, right? You're either repelled, right, or you're either attracted. And the motion with which that entity is repelled or re- attracted ultimately is exponential. So it starts off gradually, and then bam, we have attraction. Or it starts off gradually, and then bam, right? It, it flows away, right? And at some point, in, if you can take that piece and understand that faith is almost this entity now where we view it as either something that attracts you to God, right? It starts gradually, and then all of a sudden you've now been attracted, or it repels you. It is almost this barrier to entry, Right? Should you take that leap of faith, the faith size of a mustard seed, ultimately what you'll view is now, right, it starts to grow. There's empirical evidence now to it. I think I was listening to some videos about Bible study, uh, and, and people were saying a lot of things like trust and confidence. Confidence denotes, and I think Rachel said this, but confidence would denote that you had facts, that you had something there to continue building that up in, right? But there is this leap of faith at the beginning. So, I say all that to say that many people, and I think it's a common misconception in the church now, that faith and development in the faith is almost this haphazard affair. Right? That it's a lottery. And I would venture to say that that is not the case at all. What I will concede and what I will you know, kind of point to is ultimately, I think, experience and history, right, is almost, you know, if you can, I guess, forgive me for saying this, a lottery, right? Or, or what the secular world likes to call just dealt bad hands. Because we are in a fallen world. The devil is the ruler of this world, right? And there are things that we experience in this life that ultimately, at the end of the day, 
happened to us. So that's experience in history. But what I would argue is that faith development is not at all a haphazard affair. And what I want to say about that is there are three common entities to heroes. Remember what we were talking about, about our, our end goal, right? About our heroes, how they got there. There are three common entities to that. And I'll, I'll list them out for you now. There is a yes to God, right? There's a call. There's a promise. There's a dream given, right? That's always a starting entity, right, in the stories. Then... Right after, and what I'm going to focus on for the majority of my talk today, is there is a wilderness, or there is a desert, right? And there, it might be singular, and it might be, you know, a pluralistic, multiple type of, of, of season. And then what you have is the emergence from the desert, where ultimately what happens there is there is this insatiable thirst and love for God. There's this tunnel vision, thirst and love for God, that despite whatever happens with the promise actually manifesting, right? Whatever happens with that, whatever comes alongside that, does not matter, does not concern anyone that is going through that journey, right? So those are the three aspects. I think everyone here is pretty familiar with the yes and the call to God. If you're not, right, um, I believe you're in a beautiful place, especially when you're in the search for, and, and you're diligent in your your search for truth. Um, the one thing I will say is people, people are, are kind of, once they have said yes to God, right, they're familiar with the promise, the dreams, the call, the tug on the heart, right? I think everyone is familiar, as we just read, of what people go on to do in the faith, right? So I do really want to focus on uh, the desert and the wilderness. So what I want to start by doing is give kind of an expository uh, review of the characteristics of the desert or the wilderness. And ultimately, through doing that, I just kind of want to illustrate a funny thing. <laughs> uh, I think it's funny. But what in the, what, what, what in the world do we see when we, we go to see a coming-of-age movie? This is my part one, by the way. I know you guys thought, like, dang, he's getting through his serve. No, it's not. It's, we're still in the meat of it. Um, but ultimately, what, what do we see in coming-of-age movies? Right? And we see it in the Bible as well. So we can't really blame, oh my goodness, culture is affecting my view of this. It is. It's enforcing it. But ultimately what happens is you see, I don't know, the young hero or the young superheroine, right? And they start off and they're called to something or they've experienced tragedy or something has happened to get them to this place of self-reflection, a life moment, right? And then you have two, three minutes, right? And that takes up a, a huge part of the beginning of the movie, right? And then two, three minutes of this person growing and evolving, right? Basically, they're with an apprentice or they're on their own and, and they're, you know, almost ostracized from the community and developing, right? So someone who started off as five is now 15 or 16 or 17 or whatever the age may be. And all of a sudden now they're, 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 they're being beat down, right? They're getting, they're getting absolutely pummeled in this cutscene, and you're getting inspirational. Tears are welling up, and just absolutely, you know, everything's happening to you in this moment. And then all of a sudden, they grow up, and now they're beating up the person that was beating them up, right? And now things are just escalating. And, and all of a sudden, you're filled with, my God, my favorite scene of the movie, or at least it was mine, right? And at some point, then, you have the manifestation of what they were called to. And after that, basically, they're, they're going off into their into their journey, into their calling, and successful in it at all times, <laughs> right? That's common in stories that we see today. And what I find hilarious um, is that the Bible actually does this as well. I want to kind of cycle through a couple of, of people in the Bible um, and, and just kind of observe where their journeys took them. Let's start with David. How many of you guys know what David did immediately after he was anointed the next king of Israel. Anyone? Miss Marsha. He went back to shepherd the sheep. How insane is that? I, I'm, I'm always like sitting there almost righteously jealous, I think. I, I don't know, like of David because he's a man after God's own heart. And I'm, I, I'm always adding to the, the argument of, okay, I can see why. Hopefully I'm going to get to that, right? But at some point you kind of, you look at this and he just received the anointment, right? As, as, as the next king of Israel. And he goes right back to shepherding. It blows me away. And I think what's interesting about that is right after that, he goes back to shepherding. He spent some time doing that. 
And then there's the great war, right, that Saul is, is now leading. And Goliath, we all know the story of David and Goliath. And, and David, after absolutely no push or pull or tug from God, goes to slay Goliath. And he uses this as reasoning in front of Saul, and he goes, I have experienced in my, in my day's shepherding, right, the, the, the teeth of the lion, right? I've saved my sheep from the, the, the jaws of the bear, and on and so forth. And he goes, how, how now will I allow this man to mock my God who has provided for me and who has saved me and who has, right? There's this intimacy here that he's referencing. He goes, will that not follow me now into this next endeavor, Right? And so what's interesting about that is right after that, he slays Goliath, and all of a sudden now he's running for his life because Saul is like, nah, my man, like you, you're, you're stepping on my toes here, right? At some point, I'm now jealous of you. I'm now going to pursue you. You are now in exile, right? So David goes from his call. He goes right back, right? There are these things where he now has experienced the wilderness, the desert. Well, let's go to Joseph. After he had that dream of the 12 uh, stacks of hay that bow down to him and the sun and the moon and the stars all bowing to him, right? Right after he reflects to his brothers about that particular area right there, he's, he's sold into slavery, is he not? He's sold into slavery. He then is put in jail shortly after, right? After working his way up through the ladder and he's put in jail. And at that time, I don't know about you, but if I'm Egypt, right? At that time, you're worried about, about conquerors coming to kill you. So if you're in the dungeon underground, absolutely no one is thinking about you. You see what I'm saying? How insane of a story is that, that Joseph would be asked right after his call, right after his dream, to go through this desert wilderness period. Let's, uh, let's go a little faster. Moses, same thing, 40 years in the wilderness. How, how, how does that happen? Right after he kills the Egyptian and he goes to witness the two Israelites and goes, hey, why are you guys striking each other? And he goes, did you not do the same thing with, with the Egyptian that you struck and killed? Right? And then all of a sudden, his moral dilemma of kind of searching and debating as to who he is and what he's just witnessed, and now all of a sudden he flees to the desert and, and, and tends to sheep in Midian. Actually, let's talk about Paul. Paul is hysterical as well. <laughs> um, Paul does three years in the wilderness. I don't know if if too many of you are familiar with that, but let's, let's read Galatians 1, 11 through 18. It says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Um, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. What? <laughs> you, you know when someone's telling a story to you and you're like, yeah, yeah, like, tell me the story. And everyone's sitting there like, yeah, so I was, I was there and we were driving on the highway and then all of a sudden, explosion, boom, pow, and then, you know, and then we reached Disneyland. And you're like, what? Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> let's, let's rewind. You know, we are always aggravated by storytellers. Who, who give you this piece of something that happened and you just need to know more and they speed right past it. And here Paul does that, right? I was, I was given my call in my ministry, right? No man revealed to me except for Christ what the conviction was, right? We can read it in the passage. And ultimately from there, he's, he's taken right into the wilderness. He had no opportunity to share this or to, to go about it. Let's go to John the Baptist. All his life, question mark, Right? If we go and read Luke 1, 1, 180, um, ultimately you have the prophet Zacharias who basically proclaims that um, uh, to John the Baptist's mother, hey, you're going to have this son and he's going to do these insane things and, and, and things of that nature. And then in verse 80 he goes, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. Okay, we're on a good track right now. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Insane, 
as I said. The guy didn't even get a chance to choose. He was called at birth, before his birth, and the guy just lived in wilderness until the day of his appearance before Israel. Um, Elijah, 40 days. Let me preface this for you. You have Elijah, who has just been on Mount Carmel, right, against the 450 prophets of Baal. Fire, all-consuming fire, comes up and consumes the sacrifice. He's just made a fool of all the prophets of Baal right? Proceeds to execute them, right? And then he runs away because Jez, um, I always forget the name, Jezebel basically talks to King Ahab and ultimately goes, you see what he did? Let's pursue, right? And, and if we read 1 Kings 19, 3 through 5, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Let me just read that part again. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And this, I, I'm not just trying to manufacture dramaticism here. Like, I'm, I just really want you guys to cl- just grasp this idea. Like, put yourself in these shoes. Think about your own lives, right? Here is a man who had just had the most insane display of God's glory and power and witnessed it and put to shame an entire nation, right? And all of their holy, you know, uh, stewards of, of re- religiosity, right? And ultimately, he's going, I've had enough of this. Read, read it, and just keep, keep just marinating in that. Jesus, oh, and you guys are probably looking at me rolling your eyes. We all know about Jesus, but what's, what's <laughs> right? I mean, we do that a lot. I'm telling the Sherlock Holmes and Watson story. Let's not, be myth- let's not be too robotic about how we recite these things. Let me just read for you, right? Matthew 4, 1 through 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, right? But... I don't know if you guys read chapter 3, 13 through 17, right? Let's read that. Then Jesus came from Galilee to, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's jump back to 412. Literally right. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Right? There's, this, there's this thing being drawn here. There's this ultimate entity that's happening here where you have people that are called, right, that find this absolute insane, maybe you find worth, maybe you find your value, maybe, right, there's, there's something there that gets you excited about the life that you're living, right? Because ultimately what's so insane about the walk with Christ is that you come out of a world where now I, I found my identity in these things and now that's supposed to get refined out of you right and so how insane is it for you to realize that my goodness my god has a call for me my god has a purpose for me has value for me right in this new thing right but immediately after then you jump into the pool that is the wilderness or the desert right for any amount of time i've just listed to you guys there are people that have been there for years there are people that were there for for a couple of days right there's any number of things that can happen with that and so I guess you're all wondering, so what is the desert, Samer? You've been <laughs> mentioning it a lot. I don't know where we're supposed to go from here. Um, I, so it was interesting, actually, in, in my prep for this. You know, I was kind of asking the same thing, like, God, I, okay, I, I hear these blips on the map where I know that someone's been through something insane. What is it that they went through? What is it that they experienced there? And I think Isaiah 34, 8 gives us an interesting picture, uh, picture albeit it is a very uh, gruesome Uh, uh, there's a gruesome context to it. So let's read it a little quick right now. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Eden shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. 
None shall pass through it forever and ever, but the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals. What is the haunt of jackals? An abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to its fellow indeed. There the night bird settles and finds and for itself uh, herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, where the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. Interesting context about this passage is <laughs> verses 1 through 7 are this gruesome depiction of God's wrath and judgment of the nations. So you can almost view it as a, it, it is a prophetic passage, right? But what I find interesting about this is ultimately God is talking about very gruesome, gory, bloody passage, 1 through 7 of of the blood, the human blood that shall flow because of God's wrath, right? It says that the very mountains will dissolve <laughs> because of the human blood that will be shed. It's gruesome, gruesome passage. And it almost kind of, you know, it sh it has you shake and shudder and go, oh my goodness, like this is, this is really intense, right? And what follows thereafter, and I guess if we, we pull ourselves back and we look at, okay, what is God trying to say? Ultimately, human ambition and pride, right, will ultimately come to demise, right? And at some point you have kingdoms rising to power and things of that nature um, kind of sitting in, its, in their own manufactured glory. And, and what God is trying to say, all of that I have given to these beasts of the earth that actually culturally were considered incredibly horrifying, right? The haunt of jackals, owls, hawks, ravens, snakes, all of these different things. They were considered absolutely horrifying to, a, uh, to the, the, the Jewish and Gentile uh, culture. And ultimately what happens now is that kingdom that now sustained itself on its own power and all glory was brought down low to what you would see in the desert or you would, right? And it, it's kind of true. You, you kind of look at a desert and you go, my gosh, there is a line of confusion. Have I been walking in circles or am I making progress in one direction, right? At, at, in, during the day, you have absolutely nothing that quenches your thirst. There's this heat. There's this, this pervasive heat that like invades and, and tries to crush you. And then at night, the exact opposite, right? You have the cold. You have all of these different things that are occurring. So that's kind of the description of the desert. Here's kind of my most exciting part of the sermon. <laughs> uh, it's part two. Um, what, and, and basically, ultimately, what I want to say with this is, is that the desert reveals what is within you. Amen. So I know I've kind of given you an expository of what the desert is. I've kind of defined it for you, hopefully. We've gotten some context, rapid fire. Just bear with me. At the end of the day, this, this message is kind of like a buffet, and go to whatever you'd like to after this, right? And just rest with that and pursue it on your own. But the desert reveals what is within you. I want to tell you the story of Peter just one more time. I know we've heard it all the time um, in Matthew 14, 28 through 33. Um, and I, I know this isn't necessarily the desert or the wilderness that Peter is necessarily in, but you can almost take it as a figurative moment in Peter's life that really defines some things about what God wants to do with you and your heart and what is within that. Um, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I, I don't know if you guys are like me, but for the longest time I'd read that passage and go, man, Jesus is totally mocking Peter. You know, and I'd, I'd sit there going, my goodness, like I'm kind of offended by that. Like that's, that's kind of concerning. And at some point you would be led to say that, that that was indeed the case, full stop. And what I would challenge you with is 
God is not at all doing that. I think what's interesting is he says, oh, you have little faith, but it's really in reference to, oh my goodness, you have this little faith that got you out of the boat. Why would he mock him if there are 11 other guys sitting there in the boat? You see what I'm saying? And what's happening now is Jesus is just revealing to Peter that Peter is getting closer to Jesus physically. It's not like he's still out in the boat. Like he had this insane faith to get out of the boat, start walking towards Jesus, and he gets closer and closer, and then he doubts. And how often do we do that in our lives? And I, I feel like it's an interesting part where, where God is not only just looking at Peter to mock him or, or condemn him, he's merely convicting, right? And, and revealing what's in his heart. Yes, you had this little faith. It got you out of the boat. It got you closer and closer to me, by the way, right? But something happened there where you noticed the wind. And what are we going to do? What are we going to do with that? We're going to grow it. We're going to make it stronger. So none of these things affect you later on. Um, I do want to read the story of Jacob. Um, and to preface, the story of Jacob is an interesting one, right? In Genesis 27, 18 through 30, he steals Esau's blessing by using Esau's name, his appearance, his likeness, right? To steal his blessing from, from his father. Esau seeks to kill Jacob. That's Genesis 27 through 41. He's on the run. Rebekah helps, his mother Rebekah helps Jacob flee to Laban, his, his uncle, right? Genesis 27, 42 through 45. God promises to give Jacob the land under which he sleeps. He's in the wilderness. He's in the desert, right? He has a promise. There's another common factor of that. And he promises to give him the land under which he slept. Laban gives Leah unto Jacob instead of Rachel after seven years. And then he gives Rachel unto Jacob after another seven years. And what happens now is you have Jacob who has been on the run, who has been using false identities in every which way, right? And almost in a way you can kind of see that he's relying on his own power, right? And so here he is hearing that Esau is coming from afar. And this cracked me up, but in Eastern tradition, you know, you would argue that, yeah, when trouble is coming from afar, just send gifts to those that may oppress you, right? So, I mean, you can see in the scriptures, wise men always come bearing gifts, right? So that's what Jacob is doing. He's trying to buy the loyalty of, of uh, Esau, right? And he's, he's afraid. And, and basically what he does is he crosses the fort of Jabbok. And what happens is he sends his wife and his daughter out from there. And what happens thereafter is he then wrestles with God. And it's this insane passage where ultimately... He's wrestling with God, and I'll paraphrase. I, I see the time there, and I'm laughing. But um, basically what it says is, as they've been wrestling, God, or the, the man he's wrestling with, touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip, hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And there's some things to pull out of this verse. First off, I, when I first read this, was kind of a bit irked, right? Because at some point I'm looking at God going, <laughs> you're such a cheater. Like, that's, like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, how, how are you going to go through this interaction with Jacob? Um, and these are the actions. And I don't, uh, we do have some old wrestlers in here, but um, I don't know if, if some of you that have wrestled, I don't know if you understand, like, in wrestling, one of the strongest points is not only your core, but it's your hip right? And so God disables that. But metaphorically, he's disabling all of Jacob's strength. All of the strength that he found within himself, right? And I guess, as I said, like, it is a profound moment where you kind of go and, and go, wow, why, well, why did you do that, God? Um, after that, he says, day is breaking, right? Trying to distract him once again to let go, right? And here, it's not so much that God is, is trying to have Jacob prove to him anything. God already knows, right? But what God is having Jacob do is prove to himself what is within him, right? Here's a man who has spent all of his life fleeing. He spent all of his life in, in, you know, different alibis, right? Trying to steal blessings and things of that nature. And what happens here is a man, right, who, who now God has allowed him to see that I will not let go. When I, have the, when I have the creator there, I will finally seek blessing from him and him alone. And I will not let go despite my hip just wiggling out of its socket, despite not having any strength of my own in this matter the other thing that god does is he asks him his name here is an all-knowing all-seeing omniscient god and the one question he asks jacob is what's your name <laughs> you have to realize the comedy in this uh, maybe it's just me but at, at some point 
<laughs> like, what's your name? And it's, it's interesting because I, I finally came to this conclusion and, and it, it, it really brought me to tears. Ultimately, when Jacob first pursued his blessing, um, what name did he use? He used the name of Esau, right? He used the name of his brother, a, a different identity. And so what's insane is God then gives him an opportunity to use his own name, right? To use his own name to seek the blessing. It is me, Lord, here, prostrate before you. There's, there's absolutely no strength in me. And, and you're asking, I, my name's Jacob. I have nothing else to hold on to. My name's Jacob. And God says, because you have said this, right, I will now bless you. I, I, I will now rename you Israel, right? And I will bless you in the, all of these different promises that God now gives Jacob. It's, it's interesting when you read the word. In the narrative, which is a lot of these reflections of these stories, you ultimately get one sentence dedicated to the desert of the wilderness. You never really get a picture. It's narrative, right? You're reading, you're reading a book, and it's narrative, and I feel like there are a couple of books where ultimately you get glimpses of what is truly happening in the hearts and minds of the people going through the des desert and wilderness. I'll briefly just mention the Psalms, David, right? Job, read those books. Read those books and test it, right? And just kind of understand, my goodness, God is definitely giving me a picture into what these people are, are, are thinking and believing and, and, and how their disposition is towards the desert, right? And I would ask you this, how do I know what is truly within me as a believer? How do I know that, right? How do I know that when I ask for peace that surpasses all understanding, right, that is, that is truly within me or developed within me? I don't, right, until something that contrasts comes into my life. And I realize, my gosh, I have no idea what that even means. I've just thrown away all of my peace just in one small insignificant moment in my life, right? How do I know that when asking for, for faith that I can move mountains with it? How do I know that, right? When singing the songs we're singing each morning, right, in Christ alone or things of that nature, how do I know that that is actually within me? And I would argue to you that ultimately that is found in the desert. When the Lord brings you to a place where all of a sudden you have all of these frightening things, all of these things that are attacking what you thought was solidly lodged in your heart. As a believer, I walk around and I go, yeah, Lord, I went through this one moment. Cool. I'm in the comfort of my own home. I'm, I have friends and a community and this thing, right? And all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, I sing a song. I, I sit and listen to a preacher. And all of a sudden, I feel strengthened. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when that is tested as a believer, what then happens to you, Right? Again, like faith, right? It'll either draw you to Christ desperately or it'll repel you, right? Because it's a, it's a sobering thought that this is an exclusive invite into the desert and the wilderness where God truly wants you to know what is within you. And not only that, not to have you sit in the shame of that, but to have you climb out of that encouraged, excited, and ready to go and developed, right? Through, through over and over. I, it was funny, as a young man, I guess... Um, you can imagine that marriage is on my mind, that there are certain dreams about career that are on my mind. And to be very honest with you, this, this hits close to home. Hopefully it, it hits close to home for some of you guys. But ultimately what's interesting about that is I feel as though God has called me into the desert or the wilderness. And I will all of a sudden imagine up these mirages to encourage myself with. So for instance, right, God has called me into a desert, right? How do I know that that I'm ready for marriage and that God is my soul love and, and all of these things unless he calls me into the desert where I don't experience any of that and I try and take control of that season. And what I do with that is I'll see a crush or I'll see something like that and be like, oh, God, this is who you met. Yes, yes, indeed, right? And it's a mirage in the distance and I hightail for it, right? I run for it. And I was like, yes, 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 I'm going to get it up. And then all of a sudden you get there and it's nothing, right? You have more desert. And you're like, what? but it was right here. Where, where was it? And I've expended my energy in that pursuit, have I not? What also has happened is I'm now left with utter devastating disappointment, right? I've ran for something that I thought was, oh, and, and God's like, no, no. I, I, that wasn't for me. That wasn't for me. You took, your, you took this into your own hands, right? 
with career, with, with maybe grandchildren, with maybe buying a new house. With, I can name any number of things that might be mirages in our desert or wilderness season that we might run towards, that we might use as, as kind of a, uh, an excuse for encouragement or excitement for the season to come instead of God himself, right? That that, and it might seem elementary, but I just need to, we need to come back to this, is, is ultimately the desert shakes, right, what can be shaken, Right? It kills what can be killed. Right? God almost, it, it sounds terrible, like, if you think about it in this way, but ultimately, what happens when you have a, a, a forest and, and there's a forest fire, right? And ultimately, that, the forest fire consuming and destruction and everything's burned that can be possibly burned, right? But does it destroy the seeds beneath the soil? Does it, does it destroy any of that ecosystem beneath, right? And I, uh, oftentimes, I guess I would implore of you that God would bring you into the desert to, to kill what, what, what should be killed, right? If I have dreams that I use as, as morphine for myself, right? That I use as, as to propel me into this life and just give me comfort instead of God himself, he has to take the ax to it, right? Because at some point, if I ask for peace that surpasses all understanding... How do I know that lowercase peace is not actually uppercase peace, which is God, right? How do I know that there's the lowercase love that I can do away with that, that it's actually the capital uppercase love, right, that I'm, I'm really putting all my trust and hope in, right? And so I just want to read Hebrews 12, 25 through 28. Um, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Yeah, it's funny, you know, when you prepare for something like this, you kind of, <laughs> you sit there and you're like, man, like, this is going to be profound. This is going to be awesome, right? But I, I guess I don't want to get caught up in that while speaking to you. I ultimately just want to beg of you that you would see life as, as not just things that we inject ourselves with to, to get us excited, right? That as believers, we've been called out of what we found our identity in, in and in what we should truly find our identity in. And at times, in that transition, we like to press the fast-forward button, right? Because we've let go of everything that, that we had in our pockets. We let, right? So at some point, you're just, ah, I'm feeling kind of light. Let me start stuffing them again, right? What if, I'm, what if I've been called to be a preacher? What if I've been called to be uh, uh, a Bible study leader? What if I've been called to do, to worship, to all of these things, right? And then all of a sudden, those are the things that fuel you, that fill you with passion, that fill you with desire, that fill you with excitement for this life in Christ, right? When God is trying to bring you back to the basics, right? It's all about me. And that would take me to, I guess, the third part, and I'll skim through this um, uh, rather quickly, um, is ultimately the, the effects thereafter. I really want to highlight that most of these heroes in the faith, we're in the hero series, are we not? Ultimately, the heroes in the faith have absolutely nothing to do with the effects of the blessings of God in regards to the promise, the call, the dream, right? And ultimately, what happens there within is there's a disregard almost, right? And I just want to encourage you just with a quick verse, and we'll keep going with that thought, is ultimately, if you see in Deuteronomy 2-7, uh, it says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord, has been, the Lord God has been with you, you have lacked nothing. That He knows you're going through this wilderness, this great wilderness. Right? As, a, as another interesting aside, right? We're in the third part, the effects thereof, the transition out of the desert, right? Um, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through, this is Luke 11, 24 through 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. 
Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the, that person is worse than the first. I, I, I didn't get a chance to read it to you, but in, uh, here we are. In Jeremiah, God refers, he, he talks to multiple people who have been going through the desert, the, the Israelites, excuse me. And what happens is, in 13, it says, verse 13, Jeremiah 2, 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And I guess I would say that, and pause dramatically to say this, um, if we look at Luke 24 through 26, the unclean spirit... Um, it passes through waterless places. What is that in reference to? Is that a literal desert? Yeah, culturally, not quite, but yes, culturally, they would view a desert as a place that was infested with demons. That's, that's, that's where they went physically, right? But actually, if you, if you study this and, and, uh, and look at it a little bit closer, the waterless places for the unclean spirit, the demonic, the, the evil spirits, are actually believers filled with the Holy Spirit that once the unclean spirit was casted out, it would venture throughout the world to go through waterless places, right? What, el what else can I latch on to, right? It's a spiritual entity, and we're spirit, right? We're, we've been created by God, we're spiritual beings, right? So at some point, it's trying to latch on to another, right? And if, if you are truly filled with the Lord, right, you would be filled with this fountain of living water that would constitute waterless for an unclean or evil spirit. Just an interesting thing to think about. Um, I want to get to Isaiah 35, 1 through 10 of, of the effects of what God does with us in the wilderness or the desert. Um, 35, 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with sing joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands. Excuse me. And make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. They shall not go astray, even if you're dumb, as, as dull as a doornail, right? You will not go astray with that, right? No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I guess in, in some of my closing remarks, I would ask you, when you read such things, there has to be some sort of uh, an internal debate. Some, as I said, friction or tension, right? What do you mean, Lord, that if I'm to be brought into this particular season before I see the manifestation of what you've called me to do, what do you mean that this is all going to happen, right? That I'm going to suddenly see this desert as now it's a singular highway that ultimately now, right? I would ask that you, you, you test God in that manner. If you're an unbeliever here today, I, I want to encourage you that this faith is not necessarily um, uh, a life jacket, right? It's not, it's not as easy as you, you may think, right? And I really appreciate you for sitting through this monologue. But ultimately, what, what I'm trying to tell you is it's actually almost incredibly difficult. What happens when you are called to something great? that gets you encouraged and excited about that. I'm not saying to diminish that excitement, but what I am saying is prepare your hearts because God ultimately wants to, to bring you ever closer, right? He wants to bring you near. At some point, there's this idea that should you emerge from the desert, if we go back to the story of Joseph, he becomes the second in command uh, in all of Egypt, right? 
People are bowing to him. His face is on coins. Archaeologically, you can actually find coins that, that have uh, his face on there, that he, he's well known throughout the land, right? That the things, the side effects of what God has called you into, let's say you've, you've been called to become, you know, this crazy Francis Chan-like speaker, right? That the fame, right, that may come with that, that the, the temptations of fame, that the temptations of ego that might creep in, right? All, that does not affect you should you come out of the desert understanding that it is just me and God here. That all I care about is this, right? All I care about is you and I together, right? has nothing to do with the fame, with the money. I don't even care about the money, right? has nothing to do with that, right? That none of these things would be stumbling blocks in our actual call from the Lord, right? Uh, I, I do want to end with some personal notes, just two things real quick. I know you guys are probably like, I'll never trust this guy again. He says quick. And, and uh, I don't think he knows what quick means. Um, <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um, I, I do want to conclude with, with a piece that I wrote, um, and it's in no way to promote myself. It's really, uh, it, it was an analogy given to me by God that I found, um, uh, I guess, way more concise than maybe I have been this morning. So uh, I'll read it to you now, and then I'll, I'll, I'll share something afterwards. Uh, Seeking God is like jumping into a black hole in the sea and swimming down to try and reach the bottom. Remaining submerged and on the edge, and yet to leap with courage, with relentless will to reach that which he whispered to you. And what is to be found there? Perhaps a vision manifested, perhaps nothing at all. Such is the madness involved with this deliberate endeavor. However, the illustration does not end there, for if we were to analyze this situation physically, merely leaping into the abyss would result in a likely static suspension. To leap and begin the descent would quickly reveal that you were a foreigner, that you were no longer in a land you had dominion over, that with each push further down, the black would intensify and light would remain as a distant memory, accept, accelerating rapidly into a wraith that your lungs would burn and quake and shiver and shudder, aching for a taste of oxygen. And the supply already found in your bloodstream would be shrieking and begging to be back once more where you first began. That the pressure would at first slowly build and then magnify exponentially with each desperate and baited stroke. That all these things would persist with a rage, a wrath, all at once, all united, all in unison to prevent you from meeting he who waits for you there in the quiet place. And I feel as though most people come to the edge and turn away, trading the infinite treasures of the deep, of seeming oblivion for the temporary pleasures of corals which wither away and decay as soon as they are touched. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote this, and I, I kind of, I was going through my own personal season of this, kind of going, okay, God, you know, I, I read about these people of the faith. I read about how they were totally disregarded everything that came with the call, the promise, or the dream, and all they did was hunger after you. And it, it, it bothers me. And I, I just, what does that look like in my life? Like, I, I keep reading about these things that you will do in the desert, in the wilderness, or that you will do in this life. And all I see is, is a place of stagnation, a place of, of me just wondering, man, when does it start picking up right now? Like, when do I start living in the call? When do I start going forth with all these dreams? And <laughs> it was actually bad, like, dangerous question to ask because um, all of a sudden I kind of fell into a, a vision. Um, and, and I'll share it with you now. But everything was, was hazy in this vision of mine. And, and I, I'm like, you know, you, know, you know in the movies when someone gets knocked out and they're kind of like blinking and everything's starting to focus. And in this, I am actually bound and strapped to a chair. And there are a group of men that are actually torturing me. And... I got like a cut on my thumb and it was like terrifying to me. Like, <laughs> like I, I, I've been through some crazy things, but for some reason, I was telling my sister, like, you know, things, you know, at, at some point torture is just unfathomable to me, right? Like there's this, and, and they're doing, th I'm not going to go into the detail, but they're doing, and I'm vividly experiencing this. They're doing things to me that, that are just the most horrifying thing I could possibly imagine. And I can't stop any of this. 
and it's happening, and I'm just like in this absolutely destitute wasteland of a thought process, of a vision. And all of a sudden, I hear this roaring, and I'm like, my God, what is, what is this roaring? And, and it's like not coming from the physical reality I'm in. It's, it's coming from internally. And I just hear this roaring. And I just hear, Sammer, Sammer, you know, like, and I'm just like, where is this coming from, right? And all of a sudden, I kind of like look up, and I feel like I, I see like an Isaiah 6 moment, the train of God's robe filling the temple of, of heaven, and ultimately, I, I just, and then all of a sudden, I hear this whisper going, I, I didn't get to finish my joke. <laughs> what? <laughs> I didn't get to finish my joke. And I was like, uh you're clearly God, so yeah, I finished the joke, like, and, and, and God continues on through, the, through the, the part of the narrative of the joke, getting to the punchline, and I'm, I'm like getting excited, like, oh, I can't wait for what he gets, like, oh, I have to get to the punchline, and then ultimately, I like go back and buzz back, and I see my oppressors start like going for another, and I'm like, oh, oh, no, this is horrific, right, and then all of a sudden, I just hear the roaring again, Sabah, right, and I, I start, I start, listening to God, and he gets the punchline. I have no idea what he said. God didn't allow me that, uh, that just yet. Um, and, and what's interesting, I have this third-person moment in this vision where now I'm watching my oppressors attack me, but I'm smiling and not with them physically. And I, I give you such an, uh, I guess, a personal view into that part of my life because I, I find myself perplexed by it. What do you mean that should, in the middle of, of the things I'm the most horrified by, that I would, <laughs> I would hear your voice and then wait for a joke that you're telling me? Like, this so opposite sides of the spectrum, right? And, and I give you these examples just to ponder. I, I don't think I'm going to take too much more of your time processing this, but mom, dad, now you know when I fall silent at the table what's happening. Um, <laughs> but... I say all that to say, where exactly does your trust lie? Where do you find your treasure? Um, what do you make of this life when God suddenly calls you? Do you? Are you expecting the desert? Have you identified that season? I, I, I just want you to know that, like, I think Francis Chan said this, which was so brutally honest and harsh, but so fun to me. But if you do not, if you're not madly in love with God, if he's not everything for you, and it should bother me that I'm even saying this to you, how would you mean that I could get to 100% you and nothing else, right? At some point, if you are not madly in love with God, or, or, or why would we want another one of you or another one of us, right, in Bible studies teaching others? Why would we want another person on a, on a worship set, you know? And, and, and I, 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 I'm this harsh, and it's this question I always have to face. Why would you want me up here if I'm not madly in love with God, right? What am I doing leading? Or, or talking to you about any of this stuff, if I'm not madly in love with him, if I'm not causing you to go, what is it that someone has, right? If we were to be unified in that, if we were to be unified in being madly in love with Christ, and all of this stuff was counted as folly, because all of a sudden we were looking towards him, and, and we had that relationship with him, we could reference the, wet, the wilderness or the desert. Maybe we're, we just didn't get it the first time, and he took us there again. It happened to me. It's happening to me, Right? I just don't get things the first time. I just have to keep going through it and be like, ah. I guess maybe you're saying like, oh, he's Egyptian. He's so prepared for the desert. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm a domesticated house cat right now. Like, I, I don't live in Egypt right now. What are we talking about? You see what I'm saying? All I'm trying to say is, why are we bothering jumping and getting some skin in the game here if we're not madly in love with God? And I just want to leave you with that to be encouraged, not, not completely... Um, um, discouraged. Um, uh, thank you guys so much for, for giving me time with you today. Um, I'm just another microphone in God's toolbox of them. Uh, and uh, I just want to close out in prayer and send us off in response. Dear Lord, um, we come before you, God, as, as, humble as humbly as we can. I just ask that that people would walk away marinating in these scriptures, Lord, that we would ask ourselves, what is it that you want to want in us in this life, Lord? I ask that your will be relentlessly done for all of us, God. 
that we would, we would take an active approach to your words, that we would be disturbed by them, we would be offended by them, we'd be angry, right? That we could afford to do these things with you because you are sovereign and you are powerful, Lord. And that we would return to you just like David did, Lord, and just and ultimately say, I've, I've been through all of this, Lord, but yet I will choose to praise you. That, that the love of you would be on my lips, Lord, that it would be in my heart, God. I just ask, Lord, that you raise uh, uh, the, the, a new generation of, of unified believers, Lord. I'm not talking about youth, Lord. I'm talking, and, and, and you've asked me to say this, that, that it would be all of us together, Lord, old, young, that we were unified, that they would know that you were king, that you loved us, Lord, by our unity. And I pray all of this, Lord, in your mighty and precious name. Um, may we go out from today having seeking skin in the game, Lord. May, be, may we not be scared of, of anything we face out there, Lord, that you would continue this excitement in us, Lord, that we would be disciplined, Lord, that we would go through these moments like in the coming-of-age movies, Lord, where, where you're developing us and we're finding absolute satisfaction in being with you despite what's, what may be happening to us. I pray this once more in your mighty and precious name. Amen.